Welcome to episode 67 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today's guest is Lant Pritchett. Lant is described as a rock star of the aid world. He is an American development economist famous for challenging contemporary beliefs on development. Lant recently spoke at the Australasian Aid Conference hosted by the Development Policy Centre on why great intentions and great policies don't always lead to great outcomes. He speaks about the importance of contextualising development approaches, or in other words, why we all can't just adopt Finland's education policies. What works in one spot may fail to work in another if it doesn't account for the real lived experience of locals and the nuances of the social, economic and political system. It sounds rather obvious. We'd all agree that the development approaches that we use need to be relevant for the local context, but it doesn't always play out in practice. Lance's views are challenging and often controversial, and he delivers each point with his characteristic humour and lightheartedness, which made for a fun conversation. Once again, this episode is from the Development Policy Centre, a leading think tank for aid and development based at the Australian National University. We're thrilled to be working with the Development Policy Centre and continuing to be the leading media platform dedicated to aid and development globally. The Development Policy Centre is hosting the Pacific Update from 24 to 26 June in Fiji and the PNG Update from 20 to 21 August in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. I'll be attending both conferences and hope to see many of you there. Abstracts are now open for both conferences, so we'd love you to submit a paper on a topic relevant to aid and development and hopefully share your ideas and experience with our community. You can find out more info at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. Before I go, we received some really fantastic feedback on our last episode with Viracila Budromo. The extent of the human rights crisis in Fiji surprised a lot of you. There's a lot more great media about it, including on the Dev Policy blog, as well as through work done by Amnesty International. If you haven't listened to the episode yet, check it out and join the conversation. That's all for now. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Lant Pritchett. Okay, Lant, thanks for chatting with me today. Happy to be here. Okay, so we are at the Australasian Aid Conference and you uh, gave a talk last night where you were referred to as a rock star of the aid sector. <laughs> so this is great to have you here. <laughs> I think rock star is an exaggeration, maybe minor folk singer. <laughs> a very You're specialized a audience. Singer. Awesome. Either way, it's great to have you here. Um, so there's a number of topics that we'll try to cover um, in this interview, including evaluation, aid policy, education and migration. I think we'll start with a quote of yours, though, that I particularly like, which is that there are no poor people. There are people living in poor places. What did you mean by that? Uh, What I meant by that is that productivity is the main determinant of people's income. And if you actually look at the determinant of a person's productivity, it's mostly where they are, not who they are. Um, Productivity tends to be a place-specific thing. So... Uh, If you look at the economics of growth, we have this term in our equation called A, which just represents this productivity of the factors in that place. And it turns out somewhere like two-thirds of all the variation in labor productivity around the world are explained by this term A. And this term A is like air. It's in the air. It's, It's specific to a place, not specific 
to a person. And so I have a paper with co-authors called The Place Premium, in which we just emphasize that when you an unskilled mover moves from a place where the wage is $2 an, uh, uh, an hour to a place where the wage is $10 an hour, their wages converge to $10 an hour almost immediately. There's often some language-based transition period. But very quickly, they their, their productivity goes from $2 an hour to $10 an hour because the productivity of the place is $10 an hour. I think this has implications, first about labor mobility, because far and away the largest and most reliable way to make a poor person not a poor person is to allow them to move to a highly productive place. Um, it just has orders of magnitude larger impact than any development project ever invented. And secondly, it emphasizes that you know if you really want to eliminate poverty, you kind of have to focus on the productivity of the place, just not the productivity of the people. So interventions that intervene with specific people, like business training or empowerment or microfinance, are unlikely to be super effective if you don't also worry about the productivity of the place. This is really interesting because we talk so much about ways to increase the capabilities of the individual, so by educating them, by making them healthy, by giving them a great home, et cetera. But what you're saying there is if the place is not a productive place, a lot of that might just be redundant. I mean, it's not necessarily redundant. It could have modest returns. But for instance, there's been literally hundreds of, or if not thousands, of economic papers looking at the association of education and income, and by and large, robustly find that people with more years of schooling have higher earnings. But the magnitude is also very, very narrow range. Your income goes up about 10% for every additional year of schooling you have. Well, that's terrific. All for it. Adequate return to justify the investment. But it's 10%. If you move from Ethiopia to the United States, your income goes up by a factor of 10. That's 100 times larger than 10%, right? So again, it's not saying that interventions and, and, and assistance to people to be as productive as they can in the place aren't necessarily acceptable return investments. <clears throat> it's just we should have a limited expectations of what can, what can be done by that alone. So I, I just had a a blog on a source called Econofact, and the correlation across countries between the median income of a place, which is just the 50th percentile, the typical person, and the poverty rate in that place is 0.99. So first of all, correlations like that just almost never observe in real data. It's like that's not like the correlation between height and weight, which is strong. It's like the correlation between your left shoe size and your right shoe size. It's really high. And the correlation, so it does suggest that if you really want substantial reductions in poverty, you're unlikely to do it without changing the median income of the place. And the median income of the place is determined by the productivity of the place. So again, there should be some balance between individual interventions and overall kind of economy-wide interventions. But you know, the reality is, uh, if you're going to have you know places that have had reductions in poverty of 20 percentage points or 50 percentage points, have done it by massive increases in the place-specific productivity by undertaking things that increase the productivity of the economy-wide, and then generally those benefit the people that are in that place. Right. So we can increase the productivity of a particular place, or we can support people to migrate. And you, of course, are a big advocate of migration as a development strategy. Why is that? And 
And I mean, is it an unrealistic development strategy given that we're living in an age of growing nationalism and stronger borders? Is it realistic to think that people, you know, that, that making migration freer and easier is a viable development strategy? First of all, I'm an economist. Uh, mostly economists evaluate things at the margin. Essence of modern economics is marginal analysis, which is the increment. So the first point is <laughs> incrementally, if we could get a few hundred thousand more people moving in a development-friendly, rights-respecting, rotational, low-skill migration scheme, that would be a massive benefit per each person that moves. So, you know, all of the evaluation of individual intervention, anti-poverty interventions are at the margin of, you know, what's the incremental cost-benefit. And in the current environment, the incremental cost-benefit for mobility is orders of magnitude, you know, that's factors of 10, so probably 100 times bigger than the rigorously demonstrated intervention. So, so the first of all is like trying to do more of it is a worthwhile thing. And so jumping from this is not viable as a development strategy for everyone doesn't mean you shouldn't try and do it for anyone. So independent of whether or not this is a broad-based development strategy, for each person that could have the opportunity to migrate and have their wage go from $2 an hour to $10 an hour, it'd be a massive benefit for them. So working to promote that, I think, makes a ton of sense. Secondly, uh, what I'm working on, I'm working on a project called LAMP, which is Labor Mobility Par Partnerships. Uh, we're kind of trying to promote um, rotational labor mobility, the fact that maybe people aren't going to move and become citizens of new countries. They're going to go temporarily for a job. They're going to work at the job, and they're intending to return to their home country after a period of two years, three years abroad, and maybe it's rotational where they do it for three years, come back, go back for another three years. I think this is unambiguously a viable thing that can be done at scale because the Gulf does it at scale. Now, the Gulf does it in a not particularly worker-friendly, rights-respecting way sometimes, but they do it at massive scale. So the idea, and this doesn't challenge their nationalism, I don't think anything about Kuwaiti nationalism feels challenged by having a lot of other people in their country. A, I, I think uh, people, I tend to always use the term labor mobility, not migration, to make it clear that we can consider a range of reasons why people would move across borders. People move across borders for tourism, people move across borders for for study. Um, so just thinking of people moving across borders for work is another way that people would move across borders that doesn't necessarily imply a threat to the way of life um, by having nece not necessarily everybody who moves across borders can have access to citizenship. I don't get access to citizenship as a tourist. I don't get access to citizenship as a student. You could easily imagine a variety of rotational labor schemes in which a person would have no expectation of access to citizenship but would have access to the labor market. Um, I don't think that's as politically unrealistic as people think. Second, um, I don't think people in the rich world have realized that by stop having babies, uh, 20 years later you stop having workers. And so the developed world is headed into just an unbelievable demographic dearth. Uh, currently, uh, Japan, which many people have regarded as being insular, is actively recruiting people to come to Japan because they're 
labor force age to retirement age population ratio has fallen to 1.7. You can't support the existing modalities of social protection for the aged in terms of pensions and health care with only 1.7 workers per retiree aged person. You just can't do it. And every developed region is headed to Japan in the next 30 years. So uh, roughly, crudely speaking, in the next 30 years, there's going to be 100 million more old people in the developed world and 100 million less workers. At current ratios, it takes maybe two and a half to three workers per old person to sustain the kind of social protection schemes. So really, if you figure we're going to have 100 million more old people, that means we need about 300 million more workers, but we don't have 300 million more workers being produced by the West or the advanced regions, including Japan. We have about 100 million less. So there's about a 400 million person gap between the kind of demographically needed workforce and the demographically projected workforce based on natural increase. So I think attitudes in the West are going to change very fast because <laughs> I think within the next 10 to 20 years, this demography is going to overwhelm the whatever resentments or fears there are of migration because it has to happen. There's no other way around basically sustaining the lifestyle of the West other than importing workers. Yeah, which will be really fascinating when we, when we start to need people more than they need us. And there's going to be that. I think that's going to come more than 30 years from now. Currently, given the massive differences in place-based productivity, I think it'll be relatively easy for the West to recruit workers because you know the, the wage differentials are so high. Uh, you know the, the the typical wage differential for an unskilled worker uh, between poor countries and rich countries is about fifteen thousand dollars to twenty thousand dollars a year. I think a lot of people move for that. And when the Gallup survey asks people around the world, would you, if you had the choice, would you move permanently from the country you're in? In the lowest third of wage countries, 40% of youth say they would leave their country permanently. So I don't think recruitment's going to actually be the key issue for the, again, foreseeable next 30-year horizon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as we were talking about before we started the recording, you've worked in a number of countries in this region, and I'm I'm sure you're familiar that um, it's reasonably contentious in Australia, the Pacific labour migration mm. schemes that we have um, and, mm. and the visas that people are coming here on and the sorts of work that, mm. that they're doing. Mm. Um, and when we talk about the place-based productivity, it's hard to envisage a future where some of these Pacific island countries like Kiribati and Tuvalu, they're not going to become productive places economically. Like migration is really the only option. Tell me if that's pessimistic. You know, is it going to become even more vital that that we focus on migration-based development? I don't know enough about the Pacific Islands to, to really say. Um, I think uh, a lot of, I think these, I think places fall into various categories. <laughs> uh, some places are poor because they're shooting themselves in the foot. They have found themselves trapped in what are broadly called institutional, although I don't like the word particularly, but institutional uh, or policy-based mistakes that make it difficult to make it a productive place to for people to invest and reap their returns in. 
those places, I think migration could be seen as temporary while you wait for them to fix it. And then I think as places like India have shown, having outflow while you've got your policies messed up actually can have a massive payoff because you get massive benefit from those returning when policies start working. You get a diaspora that returns and invests in the place, and that works positively. So I don't think every place is going to have temporary mobility. I wouldn't view temporary mobility as only a thing if you're otherwise hopeless. It's also let's do this while you know we do other things and try and improve everything. That said, um, I did write a paper at one point that. Um, has zombie in the title, um, that there are probably zombie economies in the sense that they're the living dead. They really don't have any long-term prospects of being able to sustain the populations they have at high levels of income because they just can't generate that productivity because they're isolated or landlocked or... You know, people. I grew up in, a, in Idaho in the United States, and I grew up near a ghost town. And a ghost town, an hour north of the city I grew up in, was a place where they mined, and they had a mine, and they took all the valuable ore out, and then the ore was gone. And when the ore was gone, the city, which had been one of the largest cities in the West, now has 300 residents. So. People move across space in response to economic opportunities that emerge in response to things like, are there valuable resources here? Is this a productive place to be? And if you look at mobility within the United States, there's been massive mobility where, as for instance, you know, farming declined as an activity, there are regions of the United States far larger than the Pacific Islands that have sort of a third the population they would have had without out-migration. So mobility across space is a perfectly natural part of any economic system. So I don't think it's terribly controversial to say there are places that just really aren't going to be able to support at high levels of income the population they have based solely on their domestic production. That sounds very reasonable. So you're speaking at the conference, uh, the Australasian Aid Conference, about good intentions, great policies, but terrible outcomes. Mm -hmm. It sounds very depressing. Um, what's your argument here? Let me, I will get back to, uh, I try not to be too depressing because I'll get back to a more optimistic take. But so the basic argument is that there is a tendency to assume that one can drive good practices with good policies. So if we want, you know, better environmental regulation or if we want higher tax collection or if we want children taught better, we can just pass a law. Uh, and that the assumption, more or less, is that the law will create some dynamic that creates the underlying implementation practices that make the law effective. My argument is there's no reason to believe that's true. And in particular, if you think about uh, the distance in some sense between the policy and the existing practices, my argument is that large jumps, so passing a law that is you know, far from existing practice, actually, instead of creating a positive dynamic in practices, creates a negative dynamic in practices. And it does so by creating too much pressure on the implementing organization um, to actually implement and can create a negative dynamic where what I call the fact facts required for implementing policy get replaced by arbitrarily declared administrative facts, in which case 
it becomes a deal. Um, you know, whether or not you get a permit depends on not the law, which can't really be implemented as designed, but on whether what deal you cut with the environmental regulation or what deal you cut with a politician that intervenes on your behalf or what deal you pay the implementing agent. And once you're in a deals environment, because there's a big discrepancy between the policy and the practice, it's a really difficult dynamic to get out of because basically often you dig yourself into a negative deals low equilibrium and then no one really wants to change the law because the law is so beautiful. Oh, we have this wonderful environmental law that specifies all these wonderful things. It's just like Sweden's. And so advocates for the environment don't want to change the law. Uh, the people that get deals under the current law that allows them to do things that other people aren't allowed to do love it because it limits competition. So if I have a connection with a politician that allows me to do a polluting industry and not have to comply with the law, I have no interest in changing the law because the law deters people who can't cut the same deal with a politician from competing in my industry. Um, new entrants to the industry face the choice between do I lobby to change the law or do I just pay off and join the deals? The incentives are join the deals. Someone almost certainly is making money and or power from the discretionary power that the, discre the, the discretionary power that the discrepancy between policy and practice engenders, and they don't want to change the law. So you can easily end up where good intentions lead to beautiful policies and crappy outcomes, and then you get locked in a, what I call the difficult dynamics of deals, that you're locked in a deals environment in which the people that are, in fact, the least affected by the beautiful policy because they have deviations from the policy carved out for them by a deal are typically the most politically and economic powerful people in the country. They don't particularly care about positive reform of the law. They, they're happy with the discrepancy because, in some sense, they have a comparative advantage in exploiting the policy practice discrepancy. This is describing, I'm trying to avoid obvious words like corruption, <laughs> but this is why often, uh, you know, low capability uh, organizations that really don't enforce the law in a neutral rule of law way um, is compatible with a lot of development actors and experts promoting the adoption of beautiful policies that look like Sweden or Finland or Norway or some other attractive place, but which are just wildly out of touch with the reality. And I think this kind of overambitious wishful thinking is a, is a common and pernicious element of development activity. Yeah, this is the example you gave yesterday that I loved about Finland, um, about why the policies that work in one country and create great outcomes just won't do the same in a country with a completely different socioeconomic, cultural, political makeup. And you mentioned how Finland has brilliant education outcomes. And so people go on study tours to Finland to try and learn about what policies they've implemented and the systems and the institutions, and then say, try to apply that to Cambodia, which just simply won't work. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's un, it's certainly you wouldn't expect it to work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the kind of interesting question is why you would expect it to work because uh, and let's uh, I use some call uh, people at the World Bank have done what they call the service delivery indicators, which are surveys that look at the education sector. And they actually you know tested students, but they also tested teachers. And what they found is that the typical across seven sub-Saharan African countries, 
the typical primary school teacher mastered about the fourth grade mathematics curriculum. So if I were designing a pedagogical approach and curriculum uh, and I adopted Finland's curriculum and pedagogical approach, which depends on the fact that nearly all of them are highly selected, at least a bachelor's degree, from a quality education system themselves, many of them have master's degree, and then expected to be able to implement those same practices with people with a fourth grade mastery of math, that's just stupid. You know, it, it has the sheen of, oh, that's so wonderful and we can, you know, we can just jump to Finland. Uh, I, I just don't, I just, you know, I, I, and I gave, you know, in the talk, I often give, after all, when you think about it, most physical theories aren't linear all the way up and all the way down in the sense that, you know, magnetism, if you want to draw one magnet across the table with another magnet, everybody knows you have to keep the magnets really close because the attraction between magnets declines with the cube of the distance. So assuming that if we get the distance between policies and practices larger and larger, that creates more and more pressure to create practices, there's no natural really intuition between that because it could well be if I get the, the magnet of policy very far from the steel of practice, it just stops having any effect and then I can move it however far I want and it's not going to have any, it's not going to make any difference. But people will be rewarded for saying, wow, look, you know, the legislation, you know, we advocated, you know, in country X and the legislature adopted this wonderful best practice law for forestry or environment or education. And you get credit for policy adoption without actually, you know, then asking yourself, is this really going to lead to improved practices? It's, I think we've reached an interesting contradiction there because we talked at the outset about the importance of place-based productivity mm -hmm. and increasing yep. the productivity of a place. Yep, absolutely. But then we've also talked about how um, programs that, that kind of try to strengthen governance and create better policies often don't work because they're ignorant of the, the social, cultural milieu. So... It, what what is the role of aid then? Like, what should donors do to address that? First of all, you, <clears throat> so first of all, I think aid should have realistic objectives. <clears throat> There's a difference between optimism and wishful thinking. There's no question that countries that are poor can have very rapid economic growth. But by rapid, we mean 8% per capita. And so if somebody came to me and I said, I have a plan where the country's currently growing at 2%, but I believe with the following set of reforms, I can achieve 6% growth, you could entertain that hypothesis because there are, in fact, people having 6% growth. And you could debate whether this exact set of policies will, in fact, accomplish it, but 6% growth, whereas a lot of times on things like uh, building state capability and improving organizations and improving practices. Let me back up for a second. But if somebody came and said, I have an economic plan, I'm going to got this set of reforms and I'm going to grow at 20% compounded annually for 20 years, the answer is no, you're not. That, that's not optimism. That's just wishful thinking. In part because, after all, no country has ever done that in the history of man in all of the range of experiences there have been. And that's in part because economic growth is an incremental process and you have to accumulate productivity, right? You can't jump to high productivity. You can't pass a law making yourself more, more productive. Productivity is a set of practices and you actually have to adopt the practices that lead to higher productivity. So 
first thing is donors need to get out of wishful thinking mode on topics um, for which there's often not solid measurement of progress. And since there's not solid measurement of progress, it's easy to create wildly unrealistic wishful thinking um, uh, plans, which isn't, and again, this isn't pessimism. It's just not wishful thinking. You can be optimistic, but one should ground your optimism in something. Second, I think donors can easily contribute to countries having more rapid economic growth by encouraging the diffusion of ideas and practices that lead to that. I think donors can be part of a dynamic of leading countries to have higher capability, better environment laws, better practices on gender, better practices across the board, but they have to be have a realistic theory of change of how they're going to do that. So I'm not saying there isn't a realistic theory of change. I'm saying an enemy of a realistic theory of change is having overinflated expectations about the pace in which progress can happen and having unrealistic expectations of the extent to which progress is going to be policy-driven versus practice-driven. So I'm a big advocate of practice-driven improvements where we focus on working together with organizations to improve their practices and then consolidate those in better policies rather than imagining I can sit in the Capitol, pass a policy, and all of a sudden the policy per se is going to change the practices of people all over the country. So I think donors can play a powerful role in helping countries uh, kind of get through the hard slog of improving practices, but they have to be able, to, willing and able to adopt that as a set of realistic objectives and a realistic theory of change. Yeah, I think that's really good advice for donors. The Nobel Prize in economics last year went to three economists who have been promoting the role of randomised control trials, and I can see you laughing already. Um, I know that you're a critic of randomised control trials. Why? My answer to this is actually very similar. I am not a critic of randomized control trials. I'm a supporter of randomized control trials. I'm a critic of overinflated, unrealistic claims about the positive benefits of randomized control trials. So I have no methodological opposition to randomized control trials. I understand entirely, as a reasonably well-trained economist, the benefits of a randomized controlled trial in identifying causal impacts. Strangely and almost ironically, uh, I was the World Bank task team leader of one of Michael Kramer's first randomized controlled trials. So I am not a critic of randomized controlled trials per se. I fully understand all the benefits of the method as a methodology for identifying causal impacts. That said, I think there's just been a, uh, you know, on a scale of one to 10, if I thought the net benefit to development practices of randomized controlled trials, I think they're probably a one and a half to a two, and claims have been made that make them seem as if they're an eight or nine. So my first kind of generic point is that development is fundamentally about social transformations. So going back to there aren't poor people, there are poor places, uh, becoming a not poor place is a lot about accumulating capitals and increasing productivity. Both of those are economy-wide, determined by economy-wide policies, economy-wide institutions that, that aren't individuated. So, you know, the productivity of the typical Australian is driven by features of Australia. What randomized control trials need is they need variation in order to identify things. And you just can't, mostly you can't generate a randomized control trial about policies at the social or national level. And so I've argued if you look at 
the range of things that I have something which has been called the Pritchett test. Just look at things that plausibly are associated with more rapid economic growth and look at the things that have had randomized controlled trials done about them, and there's just zero connection. None of the things about which there have been randomized control trials have any plausible claim to being important determinants of high levels of productivity or rapid economic growth. And to the extent that economic growth is almost perfectly correlated with poverty reduction, the idea that one would have an economic growth-free development strategy as a strategy for poverty reduction, I think is just wildly empirically at odds with the facts. Yeah. So yep. I think that's the first the first thing. Yeah. I think I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think what's interesting about that is a point you made yesterday is that you only need to get one thing wrong for, for an entire development program to fail. And so if you are informing a development program on the results of your randomized control trial and that randomized... And that randomized control trial didn't actually capture anything of benefit, then you risk the foundations of your entire program being flawed. You know, I taught master's students in development policy for years and years and years, and the main thing I would try and teach them is the trinity of policy. And the trinity of policy is if you want public policy to be effective, it has to be right. It has to be doable. You have to have the capability in the organizations that you're proposing doing it to be able to do it. And it has to be politically supportable. You have to assemble and maintain the political coalition to make the policy stick. So that leads to two questions about RCTs. One, RCTs are almost exclusively focused on if I were able to accomplish the implementation of this intervention, would it in fact lead to the causal outcomes I would expect it to have? And I think RCTs have played an important role in, in demonstrating that some plausible sounding interventions probably just don't causally hang together and don't work, even if you can do them. And so that's important, valuable knowledge in the world. But we've also had a number of instances in which <laughs> uh, you could you can do the randomized control trial when you cocoon it from the existing politics and capability of the country, but when you try and take the demonstrated policy that works into the country, it doesn't fit the rest of the trinity. They, they don't have the capability to do what you're recommending, so knowing that if they were able to implement it, it would work isn't necessarily the key constraint to why they're not doing it. And so knowledge from that of the type that's generated by these RCTs just isn't the binding constraint to better practices. It's often capability, and the knowledge of what works in and of itself doesn't create capability. Um, and so they just have a wrong, or they have behind their claims about development impact are a whole series of unarticulated and unexplored claims about positive models of politics, positive models of organizational behavior, positive models of the adoption of innovations, most of which are, to the extent that they ever articulate these claims, are completely, totally faith-based. The evidence movement is the most faith-based movement I have seen in development. Uh, they are completely impervious to evidence that their version of evidence, you know, they have this belief, which is just held with quasi-religious fervor, that the kind of evidence they generate will, in fact, have impact. 
and they are just completely impervious to evidence that that's just not true. That's that's really interesting. And I, I suppose a good place for us to finish this interview and a good example of what you've just said is education programs mm. um, and, the, yeah, this evidence-based approach we do increasingly see in the way we design and implement education programs. Um, you've uh, been looking at making a shift from getting kids to school to actually looking at what they're learning and whether they're learning anything at all. Do you think we're making progress in addressing what you've called the learning crisis? I think, A, we've made enormous progress in acknowledging there is a learning crisis. And you can't fix a problem till you identify it, nominate it, turn it into a problem. And I think in 2006, I wrote a paper about adopting learning goals that if you dropped the smallest pebble in the largest pond, it roughly had that impact. Um, 2006, uh, attempting to you know really articulate learning goals just wasn't on. Now it's conventional wisdom. The SDGs themselves embody actually articulated goals for learning and literacy and numeracy. So I think as a first step, it's night and day different than 10 years ago or 15 years ago in terms of the development community be focused on learning versus just focused on access. So on that front, we've made enormous progress. Second, we should expect it to be super hard. Um, one of the hardest things for organizations to do is to shift off of a successful strategy. Um, the access strategy has been one of the most successful things in the history of man. Uh, the average years of schooling of an adult in the developing world has gone from two years in 1950 to seven years in 2010. That is a historically amazingly, if you think of that, that, that means there was two and a half times more schooling per adult expansion in the 60 years from 1950 to 2010 than in all previous human history. All previous human history had gained to two years of average schooling, and it went up by five. So again, just massive success. But the difficulty is, is that that massive success was created because the education systems were really aligned and focused on access and expanding the number of years children spend in school. Now, to take an access-oriented system and turn it into a learning-oriented system is actually really difficult. And it's, it's hard for organizations to change, and it's especially hard for organizations to change if they've had success, because it's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> We're the heroes, uh, and they are. You know, the, the, the expansion of access to schooling is one of like, uh, humanity's greatest stories. But, and now we're saying, oh, by the way, all of the ways in which you achieved that are really amenable to expansion, building schools, putting a teacher in the school, it's kind of logistics. It's, it's easily amenable to a certain approach, but the approach to, in fact, producing learning actually needs them to realign their systems around learning, and that's going to be hard, so we should expect to be hard. And third, I think we are making progress. I think lots of countries are adopting uh, objectives, improving learning. I think we have pioneering cases where we have demonstrated that certain packages of instruction can be really effective and dramatically improve outcomes. Uh, so I think the research that I'm part of is of multi-country research. We are discovering a number of important things about what might work at the system level. So I think we're on the cusp of uh, a kind of acceleration. Um, so I'm actually quite optimistic that uh, we've acknowledged the crisis. We've acknowledged the kind of depth of change it's going to take. 
and then we're starting to take steps towards progress. Yeah, I think that's a really nice optimistic note to finish on. Um, Is there any parting words you'd like to share with our listeners or anywhere our listeners can go to learn more from you? Uh, I do have my own website that has a variety of of things on it. Um, But I I think for a development podcast, (laughs) I would like to conclude by saying development is and was and remains and will be like the most important endeavor in the world, helping the world transform and make human well-being higher, which is, I think, the goal of development assistance and the development process. Um, First of all, it has been massively successful. More kids in school, less kids are dying, incomes per capita has gone up, poverty's way down. So development is a weird industry that is always obsessed with its failure and never celebrates its success. I think whether or not one can attribute the successes to specifically what the development industry does is hard, but the world is massively, night and day, a better place than it was uh, when the development industry started cause and effect and correlation, and I understand all that, but we shouldn't confuse attributability of action to whether or not there's success. There's been massive success. The development community and the development assistance community have been promoting that success. We should celebrate that success, Uh, and I worry that we should celebrate the successes there are and worry about playing for team development rather than worrying about who's scoring the most points and narrow attribution of specific indicators. That's a great point. That's a really great point to finish on. Lent, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for episode 67 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and today's guest was Lant Pritchett. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.